0: Turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter one. We're beginning a new series this morning called Vision for Eternity. Actually, we're in the larger context of this believe word. Anybody see our believe mural on the building? Isn't that awesome? My good friend Coach Hines just did that for us. And um, the V and the E, we said that believe was an, an acronym or an acrostic. Uh, with each letter standing for something, and the V and the E on the end is what we're coming to this morning, vision for eternity. And so today I wanna talk to you on the topic of the case and the configuration of eternity. If you're taking notes, write that down. The case for and the configuration of eternity. Several years ago, my children, uh, my oldest two sons joined a basketball league And that first day of basketball, all the coaches started coming out, and they were pretty impressive. A lot of collegiate basketball players, you know, in the 6'4", 6'5", range are coming out onto the court in their athletic garb. And I was a little disappointed when my boys didn't get to go on those teams. And then another... Coach walked out, and uh, I definitely judged the book by the cover as this uh, more professorial guy in his 60s came out, short, little, little stocky, didn't have the cool Nike flights on, you know, the Jordans like everyone else. Instead, he was wearing boat shoes, glasses, and, and even practices were, were a little different. Turns out he was a, a dean in one of our local colleges. Practices were different for us. The the other teams, they were just kind of going crazy, running around the court, just throwing up shot after shot, where our professor kept working on placement, on picks, on blocks, on rolls, on passes, on very strategic shots. It seemed like we were shooting about one-fourth of the time the other teams were. And, uh, you know, it manifested in the first game where we absolutely got destroyed. Uh, And and the professor kept just saying, run our play, play our game. Run our play, play our game. And I'm going like, no, the only way we're gonna win is shoot the ball, shoot the ball. (laughs) Game one went like that. Game two went like that. Game three, and so by now I'm getting really frustrated. But the professor kept saying, run our play, play our game, and kept working on the fundamentals of basketball. Something happened in game four, like things just clicked in and we won. You know, I'm thinking, yes, we're not just total losers. We won one game this season. We got to game five, we won. Game six, we won. Game seven, we won. We just started on the streak of winning to where we went to the championship game. You know, there's something about understanding the rules of the game. There's something about understanding how to play a game that leads you to be a success. I had the same experience two weeks ago. I told you I was at a pastor's meeting, and um, pastors, you know, I, I know they seem really super happy and fun up on stage, but really we're quite competitive guys. And so we were playing this game. Some of you have played it. It's kind of a newer game, or at least newer to us, called Coob. Anyone heard of Coob? Yeah, it's you put these blocks down. You can play it on the beach. You can play it in the backyard. But it's basically like uh, chess, uh, but more like full-contact chess, where you're throwing batons, knocking down these game players. And so we get out, and I get to be with one of my best friends, Carl Gully, and we're both like, former athletes. So I'm thinking, we are going to kill it in this game. And we start, we take on these other two guys, And as we kept playing, they kept sharing more rules. And I'm thinking, no, I know Coob. See, someone had given us Coob, and so what I did is what everyone does. I watched one video on the internet, so that makes me an authority. Selah, think about that. And they kept telling me more and more rules, and as the rules kept unfolding, we lost the game within five minutes. And so I was pretty frustrated because I'm thinking, hey, we should be good at this. Yeah, I mean, we were both junior high quarterbacks. <laughs> and so I paused after that first round. They said, do you want a rematch? I said, absolutely. And I sat for about the next five to 10 minutes picking their brain on every rule there was in cube. And we came back with a full knowledge of the boundaries and the rules and the way you play cube and we definitively won. Thank you very much. Genesis 1 unpacks the boundaries, the the rules of eternity, because let me explain it this way. There's two basic philosophies on the origins of earth and the existence of life on the earth. There's two basic philosophies. One is this. It's called intelligent design. means that the earth came about and everything in it by the intentional purpose and forethought of a sovereign, loving, all-powerful God. That's called intelligent design. The second philosophy that, that many, many, many people adhere to is what would be known as primordial soup or preabotic soup. So what is that? Let me just read that to you. If you were to look up the definition, you can search research this more, a solution rich in organic compounds in the primitive oceans of the Earth from which life is hypothesized to have originated. Primordial soup or prebiotic soup is, or prebiotic, excuse me, is the hypothetical set of conditions present on Earth around four to 3.7 billion years ago, and its fundamental aspect that the heterotrophic theory of the origin of life. Basically, the premise is this, that these these substances and chemicals and gases we're in existence and in the perfect conditions, life sprung up first in the amoebic form and then things evolved into what we have, this perfect earth and these very complex beings called humans and all the animal life. Now, today is not uh, a sermon to, to bash modern science. That's that's not my goal at all, but what I am wanting you to understand is as we grab hold of the truth about the origins of earth and the truth about why you're here, we actually understand what life is all about. So we're gonna jump into Genesis chapter one because in it we understand actually how this earth and how you and I came into being. It says this, in the beginning, God. I'd, I'd encourage everyone, open their Bibles right now or open your Bible app and underline this. I mean, those are some of the most powerful words in all of Scripture, in the beginning, God. What does this tell us? It tells us that God was there in the very beginning, before there were substances, before there were gases, in the beginning, God. What does this tell us? Point number one, we're gonna go, talk about point, different points for the case and the configuration for eternity, Point number one, God existed before the earth. Do you know that there's a sovereign God who reigns on the throne, and he is the one who brought earth and every living thing into creation? Okay, and so you say, no, no, Robert, that's what the Bible says, but is, is that really validated? I mean, gosh, it seems like I'm taking this big leap of faith to believe this book because there's other books that don't say the same things. Well, let's let's just talk about the validity of books for a second. Do you know what that that discipline of validating or authenticating books is? It's called textual criticism. Let's just get a little scholastic for a second. Put your glasses on if you brought them. Put your thinking cap on. We're going to school for a second. Let me explain textual criticism. Textual criticism is the substantiation of the validity of a book. So let's go ahead and put this chart up for a moment. This is how scholars determine the the weightiness of a book, the validity of a book. What they do is this, I don't know if you can see this, I'm gonna just read it out to you. This is comparing the Bible to the great works of antiquity. How we do this is how many existing manuscripts are there of a work? So this is Julius Caesar's Gaelic Wars. 58 to 50 B.C. was when it was originally penned. How many existing manuscripts? So how many copies can we look at that are in our our hands today? There are 10. And what's the gap between when it was written in 58 B.C. to the first manuscripts? That's 850 Years. Okay, that's quite a long time, but we'd still say Julius Caesar, and we look back, well, we, we believe that that's actually authentic history. Okay, let's take Tacticus, histories, and the annals. 100 AD is when it was written, how many existing manuscripts? Two, and when do the first manuscripts we have, stick with me, 800 to 1,000 years later, but we would say, well, that is valid history. Let's skip down now to the New Testament the New Testament, which is written in the first century BC between 30 and 90, we have 25,000 manuscripts. Now what are you gonna choose to believe? Something that has 10 manuscripts or something that has 25,000 manuscripts? Then the gap between the original manuscripts, 850 years, look at this, as little as 50 to 100 years, in fact, they've determined with the the latest findings, as little as 30 years between the penning of the original to the manuscripts we have. There is no book on earth that compares to the Bible. It has been validated not only through textual criticism, but through archeological finds. Even this week, there are more archeological finds in Israel, there's no book that's more archeologically substantiated than the Bible. Through meteorology, through astronomy, through all the ologies and onomies, the Bible is the most validated book in all of history. So yes, it takes belief to believe in God, but let me just tell you, this is the most easily believable book on earth. I would expect a big clap and applause because I don't know about you, I'm banking my whole life on this book. So when it says, in the beginning, God, we know what was in the beginning, in the beginning was... God, you have a God who existed before the earth. Watch this in John 1, 1 through 3. So this is the New Testament account of creation. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. For you that have read the Bible before, who is the Word? The Word is Jesus. How do we know that? Because it says he was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. What does that mean? If you're new to the Bible, Let me explain this, it wasn't just God in the beginning, we believe in a triune God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and what it says is God, the Son, Jesus, was there in the beginning, before this sphere, this ball came to existence, Jesus was in heaven with the Father, and all things were made by Jesus. Why is this so important? The reason this is so important is Number two, point number two, creation was deliberate and purposeful. You see, primordial soup that thus moves into secular humanism says that all of creation and all of earth is by happenstance. If that's the case, then it doesn't really matter, and we're kind of all on our own to just find our way and find our purpose. But if God's word is true, there are actually... Confines. There's actually configuration. There's actually rules of the game, just like there's rules of basketball, just like there are rules in Coop. There are rules of the game, and if we want to be successful, if we want to enjoy the game, if we want to have purpose, then we need to understand how to follow those. So watch this. In Genesis chapter one, I love this. I love what one pastor says, the gospel of Genesis, the good news of Genesis. Watch this in, in Genesis one, 26 through 29. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. Okay, why is this so powerful? Because what this tells us is that man, woman, you're not a mistake. You're not just a... Uh, 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 an evolution of an amoeba that went into uh, 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 a more complex fish that then came out of the ocean into a monkey, and then now you happen to be a person and, and everything's on equal playing field. No, it's actually God created you in his image. And so what does that tell you? It tells you that you are incredibly important. You're incredibly valuable. You're not a mistake. You're the intention. There's never been anyone like you. But you beautifully reflect the glory of God. And so what, what else does that tell us? It tells us that life is precious. And so no one can just decide, like, we don't need old people anymore. Or we don't, we don't need people that, that aren't just like everyone else. So we're just going to euthanize them. Hello? Do you understand what I'm saying? Like it says, no, a person is made in the image of God. So you can't just wipe out their life if you feel like it or if enough people vote on it. That's the same for, for abortion. Hey, you were knit together in your mother's womb. You're precious. You're lovely. And so all life matters to God. So that they might rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along. The ground, so God created mankind in his own image. What does this tell us? It tells us that God made the earth. He made the fish in the sea. He made the birds of the air. He made the animals of the field. They are good. However, they are not on the same level as mankind. Why? Because that's what God's word says. You are made in the image of God. A fish is not, you are not equal to a jellyfish. I love fish. I love to fish. I love to swim with fish. I love to eat fish. But you are not equal to a fish. But You are, are God's crowning creation. And he gave fish, and he gave animals, and he gave birds and butterflies. He gave them for us to steward, for us to enjoy. But they are not our equal. Do you understand? And, and, and so don't call PETA on me. I love animals. I'm a good dog owner. Every Every day, five o'clock, I take my little golden doodle for a walk. I'm dutiful to feed my alpacas. I am a, I'm an animal lover, so don't get upset with me. But they are not my equal. They are not. I don't, I'm not like, oh, alpaca. Oh, and Hallie, my two daughters. No. <laughs> so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. He created them. We, we keep going, we keep looking at order. It's God who created gender. It's God who determined how we were made. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. What does this tell me? It tells me that God loves people. Like he cares about it. he's like, I want more of you. I want a lot of kids in my big house called the earth. Rule over the the fish and the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, watch this, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. What does that mean? It means God wants you to be blessed. He wants you to be provided for. Some of you have a hard time believing that God would actually care about your, your needs, your financial needs, your provision. No, God, from the beginning, created an earth and he gave us plenty and it's sin that lit makes us live in scarcity and makes us live in pain and neediness. This will be yours for food. Watch this, Genesis 1 31. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. That that is so key right now. It is God who determines what is good. If there is no God, there is no good. But it is God who made order. It is God who created you with a purpose. It is God who ordered, gave the configuration of eternity. And then he says, the way I made it is good. I love people. I am putting them in charge. Now, here's point three. Point three is the bad news. Man's sin, man and woman's sin, affected God's original design and plan. So why are we in this heap of a mess? Why is there war? Why is there famine? Why is there genocide? Why do bad things happen to good people? That's one of the biggest questions people ask. If God is loving, then why do bad things happen to good people? It is because there is an enemy. That enemy we see in Genesis 2 was the serpent, and he comes. The enemy, the serpent or the dragon, we see it throughout Genesis. His name is the devil. His name is Satan. He's a fallen angel. He was not content to stay in God's divine order which is God right God first know he wanted to rise up above God and so he comes to take away to steal kill and destroy and he leads man and woman into temptation and he says hey eat of this fruit because God is holding out on you that's always the enemy's main lie to you is God doesn't have what's best for you when we sin when we choose sin instead of deciding to stay in God's confines and his configuration, it's because we're believing a lie that God doesn't have what's best for you, that his way is not the best way. And so man and woman choose sin, and I want you to watch this. I'm going to read to you the results of that sin, and I wanna show you what man and woman lost when they sinned. It says this, then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. I mean, just pause and reflect on that. Every day, they would be in the Garden of Eden, this perfect, beautiful, well-ordered, fully sufficient, ample place to live, and God would walk there with them. They had this incredible fellowship, and it says this, and they hid from God among the trees of the garden. It's like one of the most heartbreaking scriptures But the Lord called the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden. This is man speaking. And I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? Watch what happens next. God's speaking to man and woman, the serpent creation to the woman he said I will make your pains in childbearing very severe with painful labor you will give birth to children I've never given birth to children but I hear it's painful um so challenging is childbirth that like when Stephanie was giving birth I would be in the restroom like while she's birthing kids vomiting because I couldn't take how intense it was that's that's a product of the fall it's so rough that even a guy can't stand. I, some guys are like, oh, the beauty of childbirth. I'm like, no, it's gory. It's raw." You, you obviously weren't in the same situation I was in. That was the first one. Um, the second one, I was like curled up in a fetal position, trying not to faint. That wasn't, the inten- that wasn't the way it was supposed to be, okay? Women, you could be upset with Eve and Adam for that says, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Instead of walking in perfect unity and love, we see that there would be enmity and struggle in your relationship. If you're having a hard time in your marriage, don't just get mad at your spouse. Get mad at Adam and Eve. Their fault. And the devil. Spouse is not your enemy. You can have words with Adam and Eve when you get to heaven. Your desire will be for your husband, he'll rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate the fruit from the tree about which he's commanded, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. This is why work can be so hard. This is why the earth has these horrific uh, experiences like earthquakes and, and, and tsunamis and tornadoes and, and blizzards that, that wipe out the grid. This is why. Through toil, painful toil, you'll eat food from it all of the days. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground. Since it from it you were taken, for dust you are, and dust you'll return. Verse 23, so the Lord God banished him from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. Three things mankind lost because of sin. Three things mankind lost because of sin. Perfect fellowship. God intended for you to walk hand in hand with him. But we lost that because of sin. Number two, perfect identity. You immediately see after sin that people are freaking out. They realize they're naked. They're trying to put fig leaves on themselves. Then on, man and woman would be in this desperate climb, this desperate clawing to feel important, to feel valid, because they lost that because of sin. If you're dealing with insecurity today, it's because of sin. It's because of the fall of man. And there will be a time where you are restored with God face to face, and you will be glorified, and you will live in peace and joy where there's no more tears, no more mourning, and no more insecurity. Hallelujah. And perfect work, perfect work. You see that the work becomes burdensome instead of tending to this perfect creation that God had set up in the garden. Instead, there's thorns and thistles and the ground is cursed and our work is tiring and hard but that is not going to be the case for all of eternity for those who choose to live in right relationship with God. Point four life on earth is not the only reality. Please write that down life on earth is not your only reality. One of the concerns I have about Christianity today is too many Christians are living like this earth is all there is. And so we're freaked out in 2020, 2021. Why? Because all we think that, that life is is this one moment on earth when scripture clearly shows that there's something past this life. So we immediately start seeing that in the book of Genesis. We move to chapter five and we see this guy named Enoch. I love Enoch. altogether says, Enoch lived a total of 365 years. Enoch walked faithfully with God, and then he was no more. God took him away. And you're like, what the heck? That's really cool. Please tell me more. Enoch, so here's the thing. Even though sin had entered the world, we start seeing an Enoch, no, like, there's still an ability to walk close with God and have fellowship with him. And this dude, Enoch, which unfortunately, we only have like three verses in all the Bible, because I'm like, I wanna know more about this guy, but, but he's walking with God, and all of a sudden, one day, freak, he's gone. And you're like, what the heck just happened? He was taken away, where did he go? And we see in Second Kings, we see another glimpse of this. We see another kind of Enochian dude says this, as they were walking along and talking together, this is Elijah and his Padawan, Elisha. Okay, they were like seriously the original Jedis with the like robes and they could like hit things with like a staff and it would change and so cool. Control bears and it says this, as they were walking along and talking together, suddenly a chariot of fire and horses of fire appeared and separated the two of them and Elisha went up to heaven in a whirlwind. And all of a sudden in the Old Testament, you're like, wait a second, this earth is not, you, you don't see a, a ton of glimpses of this. You're gonna, we're gonna start seeing it a ton in, in the New Testament, but all of a sudden we learn, oh, there's this place called heaven, and this angelic chariot came down, picked up Jedi number one, and took him into heaven. He didn't die, he's like gone. Up in heaven, what? What? I, I got to know more. Like, please tell me more. That was point four, life on earth is not the only reality. Point five is this, Jesus taught that heaven is a real place. So we just get these couple of glimpses into heaven in the Old Testament. Now we move to the New Testament. If you're new to the Bible, the Bible's broken into two halves, the Old Testament, which is pre-Jesus, the New Testament, which is Jesus coming to earth and beyond. And so in the New Testament, Jesus shows up and he starts talking about heaven. So he says things like this, rejoice, this is Matthew 5, 12, rejoice and be exceedingly glad. He's talking to his disciples, his followers, about living for him. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in, in? So he's telling them, guys, don't just live for earth. If, and, and this was in the context of being persecuted, having all kinds of false things being said about you. Wow, we need that in 2020, 2021 as Christians. Right, All kinds of things are being being said and persecuted. And people say things about this church. And, 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 and Jesus is actually saying this, when that happens, rejoice, because you have a great reward in heaven. Like You're not just living for this earth. You might not be popular. He actually said, They hated me. If they hated me, of course they're gonna hate you as my followers. But listen, there's something better. There's coming a place called heaven. Listen to this in Matthew 6, 19. He says, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven. This is what Pastor James was talking about in the offering. Why are we people, what's one of the motivations for giving? I mean, of course, yeah, it all belongs to God and we wanna do that, but there's also this reward that if we don't just live storing up for ourselves on this earth, that as we give, as we're generous, God's saying, hey, actually, more important than, than, than your 30-year retirement fund is your 30,000-year retirement fund. Where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal, no one can mess with your heavenly K, your... You're Matthew 17, one through three. This is so cool because all of a sudden we're gonna see the evidence that, that heaven is real. Jesus isn't just gonna talk about it, but now we're gonna see this evidence. Watch this, this is called the Mount of Transfiguration. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his main homies, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as light. So the disciples start seeing Jesus as he was before he took on flesh on earth. So they're like, oh, we're, dang, we're seeing the preexistent Jesus, like Jesus in his glory. He's shining like, wow, in all glowing robes, face like the sun. But this is crazy. Watch what happens next. Just then there appeared before them Moses. You remember Moses? It's like one of the main dudes in the Old Testament. This is, Moses lived thousands of years ago. But Moses, a dead dude, is showing up alive on this mountain and talking to them. What is this, what is this proving? It's proving there's eternity. It's proving that this life is not the end that when you die, you don't just get put six feet under and your body decays and earthworms eat your nose, right? No, it's saying like, yeah, your body might be decaying or, 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 or your grandma that, that, that was cremated and the ashes are spread, but if she knew Jesus, she is living in heaven. Moses, who died thousands of years ago, is in heaven and he comes down and he's still alive. And then watch this says this, before the Moses and Elijah, original Jedi shows back up, taken into heaven, he's there. So you're like, oh, this is so cool. Because what this is showing us is that people are eternal. Like this earth is not the end for you. And so it all of a sudden makes me think, oh, I'm going to be living in eternity. I wanna know like how to live for eternity, not just how to live for this earth because My time in eternity is going to be a lot longer. Eternity is longer than a few years on earth. Point six. Point six. Don't worry, there are only seven points, so you are very close. Point six. Heaven is not the only eternal destination, but there is also a place called hell. This is the really bad news. This is the bad news. This is the truth. We're committed to sharing the truth of Scripture. Uh, the problem is 50% of Christians don't believe in a literal hell. So let me propose to you that those 50% of Christians don't believe the Bible. And let me actually propose to you that they don't believe Jesus. Because Jesus is the one who talked about hell the most. Why? Because a, a, a loving friend warns their friends about danger. Why does Jesus talk so much about hell? Because a, a, a loving father teaches their kids about destruction, things that could harm them. If you don't believe in hell, then, then you are totally buying in to the enemy's lie for your life. That's exactly what the enemy wants you not to believe. One of the greatest ways to win a war is for your adversary to not know that you're there or believe you're about to attack. Matthew 25, 41, this is Jesus speaking. Then he will say to those on the left, depart from me, you who are cursed into eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. This is very important to know. The the purpose of hell was created for Satan, the most evil being that steals, kills, and destroys, and his angels that followed him. That is the purpose. Why is there a hell? It's to punish the most evil being that, is the author of rape, the author of genocide, the author of molestation, the author uh, of all destruction. That is why there is a hell, because it is a just punishment for the most maniacal, evil, perverted, destructive being in the universe, his name is Satan. He's the one person that you are officially allowed to hate. You can hate Satan. Matthew 25, 46, then they will go away. This is talking about people that choose to reject the love and graciousness of God. They will go away to eternal punishment. Now, this defeats the, the, the theory of an nihilism, uh, which is this, that someone goes, if you die, you go to hell, and then you're just incinerated and you don't suffer forever. It's just a immediately over no, unfortunately, the Bible says hell is a place of eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Now, the amazing thing about the Bible is you're like, oh my gosh, I wanna be in eternal life, I need to be righteous. The, the crazy thing is you can't earn your righteousness. You'll never be good enough. We're, we're, we've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God, which brings us to point seven, our final point, which is the most important point, is where we're gonna end today in the beginning of this series on eternity and it's just God made a way for everyone to spend eternity with him listen to this This it's the most famous verse in the Bible but then I'm going to read the next two which are less quoted but so important for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son How much does God love us? So much that he would give his son. I mean, Think about it. Um, there's some people I would die for. I would totally die for my precious wife. I would totally die for my children. I would die, I have the most amazing staff team here. I would die for each one of my staff team. Well, Jason, I'm not sure, but um, I'm, <laughs> I'm, totally I'm totally kidding. I would die for you, bro. But there are some bad people on this earth. Like there are some rapists. There are some murderers. Someone like Adolf Hitler. There there are, are, are people that do heinous things to children. Would I die for a person like that? But this is how loving God is. This is how gracious. Sometimes people don't like Jesus because they're like, how could you be so narrow as to say everyone has to follow God? Like, I don't want that. No, this is how gracious God is, that God would send his precious son. I mean, and I would, I would die for, for my wife, but would I make my son die? Would I take one of my precious sons, Hudson or Joshua or John Mark, and say, you've got to die for someone else? I, I mean, probably not. But he would take his son and say, for the worst sinner, for that thief on the cross, for a person who persecuted and destroyed the church like Saul, who would become Paul. Are are you following me? This is how loving, this is how gracious, this is how God spares no link. And he takes what he loves the most, his precious son, and gives him for the most perverted, most disgusting, most destructive, and says, there's no one too far. Like, if you would just call out to me and just say you need a Savior and give me your life, I would give you mine, says Jesus. But God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish. It's not even being perfect, it's just would you put your faith in the most loving being in the universe, the sovereign God who created all things, by which you have life and breath anyway, and then he gives his life for you? For God did not, now watch this, because some people are like, I don't, I don't like God because he, he's the judge. And, and I don't like Jesus because he says it has to be this way. Watch this. For God did not send a son into the world to condemn the world. I mean, if anyone deserved to condemn the world, it's Jesus. He's like, hey, I set you up. You're my kids. I gave you this perfect garden. I gave you the bunnies and the, and the, and the fruit. And I, 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 like, I'm the one who gives you avocados. How nice is that? And then he's like, and basically, you spit in my face and you turned against me, but I still didn't come to condemn you. I came that you might have life and life, I mean, how, how what, what other, what other God, there is none like him. But to save the world through him, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they've not believed in the name of of God's one and only Son. Let me conclude with this story because when you start understanding that eternity, that there's a case for eternity, this world is not the end, when you understand that there's actually a configuration of eternity, that there was an actual divine, sovereign, loving God who put it in order. And therefore, if he is the creator, then he is actually the owner. He's the designer. And we need to honor him and follow his ways. And when you get this, like, first of all, it can save your soul. Like, you start realizing, okay, then I I know I need him. I know I need Jesus. I know he needs to come into my life. He needs to forgive me. But you know what? It can also... Not to save you, it will change the way you live. Because you realize, I'm not just living for this earth. I'm not just trying to eke out an existence where I just get everything in order and, and, and have my comfy little, tiny little niche of the earth where I have my little apartment or my little house and my little perfect coffee and, and, and my, my little walk and my little fluffy dog and my, it's just, you know, and have my little relationships. No, you realize, you no know, how I live in this earth will determine my eternity. And actually, if I lock in on this, I actually, I can help people find the eternal God. I can, I can make sure that they're in heaven. And so there was this man in 1884 named Arthur Stace in England. And Arthur, like, like many people I've met, man, he just had a rough hand of cards dealt to him. Both his parents were alcoholics. He grew up the, the, the youngest child in the family. Both his sisters were prostitutes, and both of them actually had brothels. And so from the earliest ages, he was exposed to alcohol and started drinking. He became a ward of the state at 12 years old. He was on his own. At the age of 15, he began, became the lookout guy's for the lookout guy because he was so small for robberies and, and for thieving and he was continually arrested over and over again and he, he was even drinking so much that he had to be checked into a, an asylum because he was losing his mind and one day a, a judge says to him, don't you know that I have the power to put you in jail or the power to set you free and at that moment that word power just stuck out to Arthur Stace and he, he just got, kept thinking about the word power, and he realized, I am powerless to be free of my alcoholism and my life on the streets. I need power to be set free. And he heard of a church that was doing a a food ministry. And, And the problem is that in order to get the food, you had to go and listen to someone talk for an hour. Arthur shows up and something a lot like this, and there's 300 men, and most of them were down and out. They were alcoholics. They were, they were uh, most of them living on the streets. Most of them living in, in, in poverty. And he looks in the very front row. He sees this totally different, th- th- these people that are, 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 are clean. They're, they're in, in nice clothes. They're relating to each other totally different. And he asks the guy beside him, Who are those people? And that guy goes, those are the Christians. And he goes, if, if God can do that for them, then I give my life to him right now. And he hits his knees. And he said at that moment, power came into him. He felt the power of the supernatural, eternal God come into him. And his life started to change. And he started to reach out to the alcoholics. He started to reach out to the people on the streets. And he started being a person who is always at church. And one day, as he's at his church, he hears this revivalist preacher named John Ridley. And this is what John said in his sermon. It's, it's amazing how just one phrase can change our whole life. John Ridley said, I wish I could shout eternity through the streets of Sydney. I wish I could shout eternity through the streets of Sydney. And again, this word starts echoing in Arthur Stace's mind. Eternity, eternity, eternity. He says, the conviction of God came on him, and he begins to weep and weep. And at that moment, he received a call. And that call, that divine calling was this. I want you to go out and write eternity on the streets. And so he walks outside, he grabs a piece of chalk, and he bends down, and he writes the word eternity, and it came out in this beautiful script. And for the next 30 years, between 5 a.m. and 5.30, every day, Arthur Stace would write the word eternity, and he'd go to a different part of Sydney and write it every 100 feet on the sidewalk, and on different walls, on different, different, uh, different places, and it started getting a hold of people's attention. It started starting conversations. It had people where they'd just stop and look down. Like there was a supernatural work happening. After 20 years, no one knew who it was until one day people saw Arthur, who was now a church custodian, that he walked out after work and he bent down to write Eternity. And they said, you're the man. You're the Eternity man. And it hit the news. And it became very famous. So much so that at Thirty years after doing this, he had written the word five hundred thousand times that in the center of the of the most populous block of Sydney in the in the square they would put the word in, in, in a big plaque eternity for everyone to see so powerful though that Eternity had become kind of the buzzword for Sydney. It had become what Sydney was known for, that when in 2000 the world chose Sydney to be the host of the Olympics and they decided to do a big display for the world to see Sydney, this is what they put up. On the Sydney Harbor Bridge, four billion people had to come face to face with the reality of eternity. Eternity. What can happen when one person lays hold of the reality of eternity? And, you know, probably for us, it's not going to be walking out and riding eternity every few feet, although it would be cool if one person in here decided to do that. That would be cool for San Diego, but but maybe it'll be like my, my wife's grandfathers. Uh, Stephanie's grandfather on her dad's side was an immigrant, but he was approached with the gospel of Jesus in America and it so laid hold of him that he fell madly in love with Jesus and he couldn't stop talking about him. He lost many friends. He even was disowned by different family members. They thought he was just a little too excited. But her dad would talk about everywhere they went, just holding his dad's hand and his dad just lovingly with a big smile on his face talking to people about life eternal in Jesus. Crazy thing is that's only one of Stephanie's grandfathers. Her other grandfather laid hold of eternity. He's 98 now. And still, when you go out to lunch with him, he'll have a gospel track in his pocket. And he'll stop every waiter or waitress, every person he meets, and say, do you know Jesus? With the most beautiful, loving countenance. Or it might be like our dads, both of our dads, got a hold of this. And my dad spent the, his, his last years uh, in the car dealership he worked at realizing that most people that everyone has to get their car worked on, and a lot of those people will never darken the door of a church. And so he'd constantly be asking the question, if you died, do you know where you'd go. And my dad got to pray with numerous people giving their lives to Jesus. You know, when you get a hold of this eternity topic, you realize that every person is an eternal being, and your heart breaks for every person to come to know Jesus. Let me ask you today, are you convinced on the reality of eternity, and are you living each day in light of eternity? Let's stand up.